all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Now, most children spend their time growing up with a smile on their face, but if your child is dealing with depression, that just may not be the case. Depression and its effects can impact not just adults, but children also. Depression can present in many different ways and can sometimes be masked as other problems. So if you suspect problems with your child, we would love for you to call in today so that we could try to answer your questions. Or if you have a comment about depression or the health of your family, you can reach us by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So I hope everybody is having a good spring. Uh, I would said to several people today, actually one person got it, beware the odds of March. I think these this is the odds of March. Um, so I don't know how that plays into March madness, but uh, um, hopefully that will bode well for your team. Um, you know, depression is something that we, we tend not to think about in kids or adolescents, um, but it's there, and it can certainly have a lot of deleterious effects. And uh, to help me out today, I've brought a special guest in with me to the studio, Dr. Ashley Villarreal. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning, Dr. Stewart. Thank you for having me with sure. you today. Ashley, tell us a little bit about yourself, sort of where you're from and uh, where you are in your training right now. Absolutely. So I consider myself a Mississippi native. I grew up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, came up, uh, graduated from Southern Miss and then came up to Jackson about five years ago, went to medical school here. And now I'm in my first year of internal medicine and pediatrics training at the University of Mississippi. So internal medicine, pediatrics, that's a confusing thing, (laughs) but uh, that's sort of what I do. So that's um, uh, where you receive training to take care of kids, but also to take care of adults. So it's a little bit like family medicine, except we don't do uh, the obstetrics part of it. We don't deliver babies. We just Mm -hmm. take care of babies uh, and adults. So uh, Ashley's going to help us out this morning, sort of talk through this difficult uh, subject of depression. And right off the bat, you know, we should we should mention that uh, it is difficult for families to talk about that. We know a lot of people out there probably are either dealing with it in their family in some form or fashion, or you suspect it. And depression is one of those things that um, it's really hard to approach, um, particularly if it's somebody in your family. And if you're talking about teenagers, <laughs> I mean, my goodness, there's lots of different you know, behaviors with them. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But, you know, there's lots of things that could be uh, could be depression, but you just don't know. Um, so first of all, I guess we should say, you know, what's the scope of the problem? How many kids or adolescents out there are really dealing with depression? Right. Um, so there's actually kind of a wide or varying degree of evidence as to how many 
kids are really suffering, but there's numbers as high as anywhere from 11 to 20 percent um, of our adolescents may be suffering with depression. And that, that's a pretty high number. Oh, it's you huge. Ask me. Uh, you know, you think about you to have a lineup of, uh, of adolescent uh, kids and uh, one in five. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's a lot that might be dealing with it. And the, the, the reason for the wide range is probably it's very hard to pick up on it, to mm-hmm. screen for it. It can it can be masked by just normal adolescent behaviors. Uh, it could be masked by other medical problems sometimes. So, uh, but still, even you know, eleven percent—that's still pretty high. So that's one in ten, right? And this high prevalence is actually one of the reasons that um, new guidelines have actually just been put out last month, hot off the press, right? And one of the reasons we chose to discuss this topic today about readdressing screening and treatment for depression in children and adolescents. Yeah, the, the AAPs uh, recognize that this is such a big issue right now, um, that they have been working on this for a while just with depression and uh, and its effects. Uh, the, you know, probably the worst, you know, suicide is what's on everybody's mind when you talk about depression. And, and unfortunately, uh, the high number of, of uh, teen suicides, but also... Um, childhood suicides. Absolutely. Um, so it's it certainly can have bad bad effects. And you know, I've never in the few families that I've talked to that have gone through that. There's always the second guessing and and looking back at it and and thinking and asking the questions. Why didn't I see it earlier? And it is hard to do that. But hopefully, we can give you today uh, some things to be looking out for in your kids. Um, and you know, it, it's it's always better to bring it up uh, and it not be depression mm-hmm. than if you miss it. Um, so, what about age differences? Certainly, I guess that we tend to think the older you are, the you know the the more likely you are to have depression. Uh, but certainly, there are some some differences with ages, right? Right. Um, some of the statistics out there, you know, there may be some differences based on are we screening early enough? But usually, the trend is that. Um, as you said, the older you get, the more prevalent it is. About our three to five age group, really only half a percent really um, prevalence. But when you get up to the 12 to 17 age group, you can actually see that higher prevalence, which we were talking about earlier, the 11 to 20 percent. And then the six to 11 year range kind of falls in the middle. So you see an increasing um, relationship with age. And, and that makes sense with what you see in you know the general population. Um, one of the things about pediatrics and one of the special things that, that we train in and, and that we, we're familiar with is that, you know, kids aren't just small adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a quote back from uh, <laughs> Dr. Batson years ago. Uh, but um, there are some things that, um, you know, that are specific to kids that may be a little bit different. And it may make the same medical problems that you normally see in adults present differently. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it is, you do have to be aware of that. And not every pediatrician is aware of that. Again, that's, that's mm-hmm. why they put out these two documents, uh, guidelines about screening and treatment of depression and really enabling primary care pediatricians to say, hey, you can do this. You can at least screen and get them uh, pointed in the right direction. I just think there's a little bit of hesitancy to do that for a number of reasons. Right. Um, so sex differences, too, you know, uh, we tend to think, uh, is it male, female? Certainly as you get older, there may be some differences there. What about in kids? Is there any kind of difference there? Or? So it's actually interesting when 
when we get to our adolescent population, I think this is fairly well known that female ha- female to male ratio is higher. It's about a two to one ratio that our females, it's just more prevalent in um, and usually emerges during puberty. Um, Seems but, like everything emerges yeah. during puberty, right? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things. But if we look at our pre-puberty, pre-pubertal um, age group, it actually shows that our males have a higher prevalence than our females, mm. actually about a 60% um, higher ratio. And nobody really understands those differences yeah. either, even <laughs> in adults. You know, they looked at hormonal differences, male-female hormones, and uh, lots of differences there and really haven't come up with some good reasons. But it is it is important to note that, uh, that just because you have a son or a daughter that doesn't make them by the, you know, the fact that they're male or female doesn't make them immune to the risk that's there with, with uh, depression. And speaking of risk, there are some risk factors that we know would mm-hmm. put you at higher risk. Uh, for depression. So you in those families that have that or they have that in the patient, you'd be looking for that. Right. Some one of the most obvious ones um, is obviously family history of mm-hmm. depression, and anxiety. And that means any first degree relative. Um, so a parent or a sibling. Um, and then, of course, things like actually low birth weight have been associated mm-hmm. with it in the past. Um, obviously, psychosocial stressors, which means any type of stressor, stressor in the environment. Such so if as, they have changes in family mm-hmm. structure, maybe a divorce, new family, right. uh, new baby in the home. Right. Uh, that has made many a family <laughs> depressed there. Um, but anything, move, right, to mm-hmm. a new new place, changes in peer groups even with right. their friends, uh, particularly if there's some you know issues around loss is a big one. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of those. What what other risk factors are, do we normally deal with? I would say, um, and going along with that peer group, is bullying or yeah, any type of things. And these are things that parents might not always see yeah. um, that could be occurring at school. Um, or any type of academic stressors as the push to succeed academically continues, I think, to increase. Um, that obviously is a big stressor for that age group as well. Yeah, we've talked about bullying before. It's such a, um, you know, it can, it can uh, be, you can see it, but it's not, it's not really blatantly obvious right. before you, but the effects of it, like changes in sleep patterns, not wanting to go to school, uh, and certainly the effects of that mm-hmm. down the road uh, can certainly be depression. I'd say another one, especially for us as internal medicine and pediatric doctors, is patients that have chronic illnesses. Oh, yeah, that's true. Patients with illnesses like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell disease um, that go through a lot of suffering through their other uh, medical issues. And depending on the, the comfort level with their, their physicians, you know, if you have cystic fibrosis, which is a systemic disease, but it mainly affects the lungs, can also affect the, you know, growth and development, uh, they'll have specialized doctors that look after that. And uh, sometimes they may not be intently looking for depression or the signs mm-hmm. of depression. Uh, and, I, you know, I've been at fault for this. You You have a patient with chronic disease, uh, several chronic disease diseases that are dealing with, and you focus on dealing with those, mm-hmm. and you don't think to ask those questions about, well, how do you, you know, how is your mood? Has it changed? Sleep patterns, eating patterns, uh, changes in behavior, um, all those things can, can be things that we need to screen for. 
uh, for for depression. And certainly if you've ever been depressed before, and mm-hmm. for some kids, and that's it, that's probably one of the biggest risk factors of that. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about depression this morning and how it can affect your family. Plenty of time for you to call in if you have a question or a comment about depression or any other health issue that may be, uh, you may be dealing with in your family. You can reach us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or send us an email at kids at mpbonline.org. We'll continue our discussion with Dr. Villarreal in just a minute after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with Dr. Ashley Villarreal, and we're talking about depression, how it can affect your family, your children how you can recognize it, number one, and how you can get appropriate treatment for it. been talking about uh, some of the risk factors and just the impact of depression on um, our adolescents. And, you know, one of the biggest questions that comes up with families is, uh, well, two, I guess. One is, what is depression? Does it just mean that I feel bad? Is there some other things that are going on? And number two, what, how, how are you supposed to differentiate that between the normal uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, behavior of adolescence anyway, because it's it's uh, it's crazy. I mean, I got two right now and sometimes, <laughs> you know, it seems like they're mad at the world. The next minute they're perfectly happy and uh, moodiness can sometimes go on. So uh, I guess we should sort of sort of define depression. So uh, depression is not one of those things that you can get a lab test, get a blood test, urine and say, okay, you're depressed. There's no one test that can tell you that. They may be, uh, your physician may suggest that if your child or if you are uh, uh, have a diagnosis of depression, they may get some lab work to try to look for other things because there are some other things that might at least contribute to that depression. Uh, changes in thyroid hormones, for instance, uh, uh, some other um, some other uh, deficiencies, vitamin deficiencies, sometimes might do that. So they're going to check for that. But there's no really test that says, okay, you're depressed. So there are, as, as there are for many diagnoses in psychiatry, there's uh, a criteria that we use. So in other words, if you have symptoms, enough symptoms, um, then that would sort of classify you with depression, right? Right. And that's, I think, one of the frustrations with um, both on the physician side and the patient and parent side is having this in, intangible um, type of diagnosis. But this criteria really helps guides us to um, make a pretty definitive diagnosis. And the current criteria shows us that um, there are actually nine different s- symptoms. Um, 
And to meet the criteria, you need to have at least five of these symptoms for at least a two-week period, and the majority of that two-week period. So it's a number of symptoms plus a time Time period. period. It can't just be, hey, Susie's, uh, you know, had five of these things yesterday. She has to have it consistently for two weeks. Exactly. Um, And one of the one of the five criteria that they must have is this um, the depressed mood or decrease in interest or pleasure in activities that normally bring that kid or adolescent um, pleasure. So those are the first two criteria. Uh, Other criteria include a change in appetite or weight, um, a change in their sleep, either sleeping too much or sleeping way too little. Uh, Other things like either if you notice they're just not moving as much um, or just hyper hyperactive. Usually we see the opposite where they're just, you know, whereas they used to run around or at least um, be able to interact well with their peers and not able to do that. Um, A general loss of energy or fatigue, just feeling more tired than usual. Feelings of worthlessness or guilt. Um, is actually one of the criteria as well. And then impaired thinking or decrease in their concentration, uh, which can also uh, coexist with indecisiveness or their inability to make decisions clearly like they used to be able to. And then, of course, the biggest one and the one we always worry about is uh, suicidal ideation or behavior. So if they're thinking about suicide or they're making plans to do something and and, and we should point out, except for the last one, all those other behaviors can be normal. That's why the two weeks is in there. So you could have an adolescent that, say, has a loss of interest in normal activities for maybe a couple of days or a week. Um, and we're also not talking about, you know, if they have uh, the flu or if they have pneumonia. Uh, they may exhibit some of these symptoms while they're getting over that illness. But there's, you know, there's lots of other Concomitant, lots of other illnesses that can go on at the same time that may be contributing to some of those symptoms. So any one of these things might be a normal behavior in adolescence because right. it's incredibly common <laughs> to have an adolescent that loses interest in something, has changes in sleep. Now, most of the time, the changes in sleep that are normal are the ones that, you know, an adolescent stays up too late, like right now, spring break. <laughs> They're all staying up too late. They want to sleep in later and course when school rolls around on monday they're gonna you know maybe have some alterations there uh appetite can change from one day to the next um so it's the it's actually the bulk of all those symptoms together um the biggest one you know uh might be uh, the mood changes Mm -hmm. that get described and uh, one of the things that your physician may uh suggest and should suggest is that they interview your adolescent Uh, by themselves. Uh, So adolescents we know are much more likely if they're, if you remove the parent or caregiver from the room, they're much more likely to be open. And I've, you know, in all my years of doing that, um, in, in 20 years of doing that, I've only can think of one instance where a parent said, I want to stay in the room. The rest of the time they're like, oh, please, please (laughs) talk to them, try to figure out what's going on, anything you can do, because usually they're at their wits end about that. Um, either with worrying about it or, or dealing with it. Um, and you mentioned a couple in there that which people wouldn't think about, like increase in physical activity mm-hmm. um, it, in or if they're, you know, if they, they can be aggressive. Right. Um, those those things to 
people typically don't think about as signs of depression, but certainly they, they could be. And we should point out everybody is going to react differently. The The real reason for depression, depression is not something you can drag yourself out of either. It's very, it is a clinical diagnosis the same way that somebody might have hypertension, uh, that they might have an ear infection, for instance. And it is caused by some changes in the brain chemistry itself. So some of the substances that the brain uses to uh, do everything that it normally does, to think, to allow the body to move, uh, to uh, deal with stressors in life. The brain has all these different uh, chemicals called neurotransmitters. And when you have an imbalance of those neurotransmitters, that's for long enough with enough stressors continually on the brain and the body um, that can that can cause depression. And everyone has different levels of that. So that's why in some families you may have some, you know, multiple family members that have uh, depression is because they're it's probably because of the genetic aspect of how their brain uses those neurotransmitters, the amount of neurotransmitters that, that are there. And that's the whole reason why somebody has depression. And sometimes that makes it easier for families to deal with that. If they know, hey, it's nothing that I have done. Um, it's it's not, uh, you know, just something that I can just tell my child, hey, you know, you're a teenager. Get over it. Uh, the world's not as bad as you think. Uh, go get a job. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that parents say to their kids. But um, but knowing that there are changes in that child's brain that they you can't really change that very easily just from doing things. Uh, now, it may get better. Certainly, physical activity is one of the things we'll get to in a, in a few minutes about, you know, some things that you can do to treat it or to prevent it. Uh, but uh, because the brain's wondrous, like it interacts the sub the, the chemicals in the brain, uh, even if you look at serial scans of the brain, uh, it reacts to the environment that we're exposed to. And that includes what we eat, the people that we come into contact with, the social situations, uh, the, our personalities interact with that. So it is a very fluid organ that's influenced by everything around us. Um, and that that's one thing that makes the identification and treatment of depression challenging sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, you know, that's sort of the way we're made up. And that's that's the uh, complexity of, uh, of childhood and uh, an adolescent psychiatry is trying to figure those things out. Mm-hmm. But it can be, it, it's a lot of work to try to figure these things out. If you go to the physician and you're worried about your child being depressed, you really want your physician to spend time with that adolescent by themselves. They may want to interview you separately as well or with the child. Uh, they may give you some, some things to do. And we'll talk about screening techniques and some of the things that are there. Um, but those are some of the things that you can look for. I would say this about risk-taking behaviors, too, because uh, we mentioned suicide. You know, you do want to make that differentiation. Uh, a lot of teenagers, well, just about all of them, they're, they're very easy to take risk. We know that. They speed. They have wrecks. They don't think about things. They're impulsive. Uh, that is normal teenage behavior. Uh, when it's outside of what their norm is, that's when you want to be a little concerned about it. So depression symptoms are a little bit different in adolescence because you have that overlay. Right. Um, you usually, if you have an adult acting impulsively like that, I mean, there are some adults like that out there, but generally, you know, as my friend tells me, we fish the shallow waters now, <laughs> uh, to quote Norman McLean. Um, 
You know, one of the things about depression, though, is, is again, statistics is sort of sobering about this. Um, about 50% of adolescents who have depression, so they already have it, it's there if you look for it, only about 50% of them are diagnosed appropriately. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is is not diagnosed. Uh, and again, there's, this is the impetus right now but behind the AAP putting out these guidelines is to try to identify those. But then if you look at the ones who are identified, only a half of those are appropriately treated. Right. So appropriate treatment is is a big thing. You can't just, it may seem very simplistic, and a lot of adults are treated this way, unfortunately, where you just slap them on a medication and expect them to get better. And that's not necessarily what you would want to do with everybody. You want to tailor it to that person. What about some of the barriers to treatment? Are there any kind of things that, you know, are difficult uh, from a physician standpoint or from a family standpoint that might hinder that? Absolutely. I think, first of all, the discussion to even talk about the possibility of depression in your child or adolescent and having adequate screening tools, which you know the AAP has been working on as well, um, is one of the barriers to treatment. Uh, but then, depending on the type of treatment that we'll go into um, later on in the session versus, you know, talk therapy versus medication timing. It's the same issues for adults. I think that you see a lot is do people have the time to go through with this therapy? Um, Also just willing to willingness to commit to that type of therapy. Um, And then just trying to get patients and parents buy in on the treatment and that this is a medical disease and like what you were talking about earlier there's still a lot of stigma around uh, yeah. the disease itself and you don't want to uh, you're you know nobody wants their child to be labeled as anything but certainly this is again it's just another medical condition and the adolescent themselves when they you know hear I'm depressed uh, you know or depression as a as a um, diagnosis, they may have a lot of pushback from that. They may not want to come. Generally speaking, they don't want to come to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Let's go to our first caller, uh, Sue from Beaumont, who has a question. Good morning, Sue. I'd like to ask if, if first of all, can children grow out of depression? I mean, is this some situational type depression when you're when you're a kid? You know that you go through all this angst with uh, uh, in hormones with and in societal uh, ex- expectations. But can you can they uh, can a child with depression grow out of depression? And also, I've heard that that some people refuse medication for depression because it says they say it kills their creativity. A lot of famous people, writers, musicians, and so forth, refuse medication because it says it kills their creativity. Is that all connected together with uh, depression? Yeah, good question, Sue. So these are questions we get, you know, routinely in the office. Um, so the first one, can you grow out of depression? So uh, I think there's a distinction there between a normal adolescent behaviors that we were just mentioning. So you can have moodiness, for example, or sleep disturbances or changes in appetite. Um, but those things are usually you don't have enough of them to actually make the diagnosis of depression. Those kinds of things, yeah, you can you can you know grow out of those. I, I would say don't ever ignore any of those things. If there's something that's abnormal in your child, 
as a parent, number one, you should be dealing with that and you should be trying to encourage them in the right direction. That's our job as parents to do that. And then to get help, you know, in lots of different ways, even if they don't have depression, a lot of times some of those behaviors, they may be interfering with everything that that adolescent can do, not just in the future, but right now. And, you know, you may even want to, there's great uh, counselors out there that are trained to do this with with adolescents. Um, So will some of them grow out? Sure, if it's a normal behavior, but usually depression, your brain's gotten to the point where it can't get better. It can't easily push through that. And there are those risk factors, like we mentioned, uh, not just suicide. I mean, that's the worst thing or a suicide attempt. But, uh, but it, you know, how do you interact with other people during those periods? And most of the time, if it's true depression, you're talking about a three to six month period at the very least mm-hmm. that they're going to exhibit those symptoms. And uh, that's going to affect their schoolwork. It's going to affect their peers. Uh, you know, really, I look at it, that's lost time that you, they could have been developing differently. If you think back to the formative things with your peers and your friends and the things that really made a difference Uh, Just think about having that taken away from you by something like depression. Second question about creativity. It's true. A lot of artists, a lot of writers have had depression. Uh, I'll point out that a lot of them did not have very good ends to that depression. So, you know, I, I guess the question would be, is it worth it for the individual you know, to uh, they say that they've refused medications because it stifles their creativity. Uh, You know, you run some risk with that. Um, There are um, athletes, um, I'm sort of stretching the term, athletes that do a lot of things that are unsafe from a physical standpoint. Um, I was fortunate enough to hear John Krakauer talk at a conference years ago. If you don't know the name, John Krakauer is a famous uh, rock climber, uh, climbed Everest several times, um, and uh, wrote a book about it. About And he talked about in the book and also in the conference about losing 50% of the people that were his friends to rock climbing, you know, accidents. And those are risks that you take. So I would say if, you, if you're if you prone to depression as an individual um, and the outcome of that depression or at least the outcome of the depression plus other things is your creativity, you're running a risk uh, of all the things that go along with depression uh, with impacting your family life. And, you know, society might benefit from that, from your creativity in some few examples but generally speaking, most people who are depressed are not creative. They're not living up to their potential. Um, there are certainly you can look and, you know, pick out people that uh, that dealt with depression. Um, Hemingway, you know, great example. And that didn't end too well for him. So, um, you know, I would say you, you really have to balance those things. I would never choose a potential for creativity over a potential for harm in a patient and certainly not in an adolescent. The other thing about adolescents is you, you really, they can't make those decisions for themselves. We don't allow adolescents to uh, make a lot of decisions uh, because they make the wrong ones. That's why we have school counselors. That's why, you know, if you, if you let a 12 year old make their decisions or a 13 year old, probably not going to be the best decisions every time. So, I, you know, I think you have to really look at that. And as we'll talk in a minute, uh, you know, Sue, there's 
it, medication is one way to treat depression, and you don't. It doesn't need to be necessarily a lifetime lifetime commitment to that medication. But there's certainly other things that you can do for it. But those are great questions. Those are exactly the questions that we would hear from families. Mm-hmm. So thanks, Sue, for calling. Um, you know, we talked about barriers for treatment. And what about screening? I mean, the, how do we pick up on this? You just mentioned, uh, gave a great over overview of, um, you know, what to look for in, in depression. But that's hard to do for families. And uh, we do now have, and actually the, the two guidelines that just came out, uh, encourage screening in the clinic for routine visits, not just when families bring in their their kids for you know for a cold or uh, uh, sore throat or for regular immunizations, but uh, you know uh, everything every time they come in, you should be sort of thinking about that. So, what are what are some of the screening things that we can we can do? Yeah, absolutely. As you said, you know, this is part of the new guidelines as well. It's been around for a while. There's a couple of different screening surveys that we use. Um, Generally, it's not done until about the age of 12, at least the patient uh, directed questionnaires. There are a couple of questionnaires that are more um, parent directed to answer questions about their child's activity. Um, But generally, just as a screening purpose, meaning You don't necessarily have a suspicion, but just to um, give that blanket screen to pretty much any adolescent who comes through your door for their wellness exam on age 12 and up. Um, There are a few different ones. One of the most, I think the one that people are more familiar with, and it's one that we also use later in life is the PHQ-2. And it's just two simple questions. And I'll give you an example. It says over the past two weeks, how often have you been bothered by any of these following problems and the first one is little interest or pleasure in doing things or feeling down depressed or hopeless so those those seem like very basic questions a lot of kids would say yes right (laughs) um and if it's a screen a screen is not is is not a diagnosis it's to help pick up those those uh, individuals that might have that problem right and it gives in that little questionnaire it gives the the patient the option to say not at all, maybe several days, maybe half the days, and then nearly every day. And so based on the scoring system that we use um, and those answers, it can lead us to do further screening um, with uh, longer questionnaires like the PHQ-9, which is kind of a jump step from that and just includes a few more questions. Um, There's a couple of other surveys, too, that there's the PSC-17 and the KSADs. Um, PSC 17 is a little more in depth. It's a 17 question other than our two and nine. Mm -hmm. And that's generally filled out by the parent or caregiver. And from what I read, you can give it starting around ages four or five. Yeah, it's much more useful for the lower age Mm -hmm. groups. And again, you're not, you know, at four, they're not going to describe your day to me. Right. Fine. (laughs) Uh, Good. Uh, happy, you know, so they, you need those observations. And it, the, some of these screenings are a lot similar to what we do for, say, attention deficit disorder. Mm-hmm. So there's a Vanderbilt screening. There's a couple other screenings for that where we get objective 
you know, observation from the parents or somebody else that's that's really looking at that child that can say, okay, I think something's a little bit different. But yeah, the the some of the um, some of the others do a little bit better job at the younger ages, right? And that PSC seventeen in particular, that's kind of broad, actually is screening for, like you said, a couple of different psychiatric um, right. That's the good thing about that. So you mm-hmm. can look at anxiety, you can look at ADHD. Some, there may be some overlap with some right. of those two. Um, and, you know, that's a good point. There's a lot of overlap with other conditions. If a child has ADD um, and they may be they are more prone to, to be depressed because they get mm-hmm. frustrated with that. They have a different uh, um, social uh, pressures on their life at that time. Right. So it's harder for them to have the the uh, background structure and support that they would need for normal and healthy development. Yeah, that was actually one of the risk factors we didn't really touch on too well earlier. But That's definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about depression this morning with our special guest, Dr. Ashley Villarreal. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about some treatment options for depression if your child is diagnosed. And again, plenty of time for your questions or comments. If you want to call in, the number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-MPB-RING. 7767264 or you can email us at kids at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with Dr. Ashley Villarreal, and we're talking about depression. Certainly a tough subject to uh, tackle, but... uh, a lot of uh, impact on our kids and our families. Uh, way too many kids. Uh, we hear about them, particularly here in the in Mississippi, in our local area, that have committed suicide. Seems like you hear of one that's early and earlier. Uh, this is why we're talking about it today. It's such a big problem that tends to get ignored, overlooked. Um, certainly, one of those things that you have to have on your radar with your kids. And uh, as we said before, it's much. Uh, better to pick up on uh, something that's that may be small and inconsequential uh, than to miss something that could have a big impact. So, uh, a lot of good, a uh, lot of good things that we've been talking about with screening and some of the symptoms and how to differentiate that between normal um, adolescent behavior, which can be a can be a quite uh, challenging sometimes. So, when we get to treatment, let's say if your child is is uh, diagnosed with depression. Um, you know, we think, oh, well, there's lots of different things I think that comes to parents' minds at that point. They may have a picture of Freud with somebody on a couch. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may have a picture of, um, you know, medication. Sue, Sue brought up a good point. You know, there's, there's lots of, certainly every medication has side effects. 
Uh, we do have some medications that are much better at treating depression than we did in the past, and a lot of those have been studied extensively in the adolescent time, uh, in the adolescent uh, age range. So what if your child is diagnosed with depression? So what are some of the things that they can, that as a parent, you can expect? So there are generally, I would say, three branches of treatment, I would say. The first being psychotherapy, which is more of like your talk therapy. Which sounds scary, <laughs> right? Psychotherapy. So that doesn't mean you're psycho, but that's just the name for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's more of your talk therapy, your cogni- cognitive behavioral therapy or group therapy even. Our interpersonal therapy. Um, the other one I think that people are more familiar with, at least especially in the adult population, is our pharmacotherapy or our drug therapy. Yeah. Um, when we think of our antidepressants, as they're generally called. And then the third branch of that would actually be the combination of those two. Um, and studies have shown actually that both in adults and kids, that's likely the most effective route to go. That means combining your antidepressant medication along with some type of talk therapy. Yeah, and the talk therapy, uh, you know, people say, okay, that sounds weird. Uh, how can that help with depression? You already said, you know, Dr. Jimmy, that uh, this that you can't talk yourself necessarily out of it. You can't pull yourself out of it. What does that do? So I guess we should should say what cognitive or, or talk therapy, psychotherapy is. So really, you're you're changing the brain through thinking differently or through giving people uh, situations and asking them how they deal with their own emotions, their own situations, so that when they're faced with those on a day-to-day basis, they they have better training to deal with that, right? right. It's about, like... Giving them a toolkit yeah, to exactly. go through daily yeah. life. And that sounds incredibly simple. Some people think, well, that's nothing. I can mm-hmm. do that. And really, it's very effective. Um, so uh, I guess a good example of this would be, um, you know, when you when you drive a car, uh, certainly you want to be aware of your surroundings at all times. If you've been driving a car, though, by your experience, um, you know, day in, day out, um, a truck driver is going to have probably a lot more skills than, say, somebody who's only driving a couple of hours a week mm-hmm. because they've been trained, uh, their body's been trained, their brain has been trained that if they see certain things, that they react to it in a certain way. Um, athletes do this all the time, and it's not just the muscles that they're training. There's cognitive therapy. We've just had the Olympics. If you noticed in the Olympics, uh, they would show athletes before their event uh, I can remember, you know, Michaela uh, Schifrin uh, before her downhill and Super G and uh, um, Giant Slalom. Uh, if you look at what she's doing, she's mentally going down the mountain. Um, uh, everybody in, you know, top level, level of athletics does that. They have visualization. What are they doing? It's training their brain to do things differently. And it does change. There's been lots of good science on this. It changes the way the brain uh, neurotransmitters interact and and work better. Uh, So you're really giving them situations through that. And it seems very simple, but you're talking them through that and visualizing and learning how to do things differently and giving them, as Dr. Villarreal said, a toolkit Mm -hmm. uh, that they can say, okay, I can use this technique if I'm starting to feel this way. And it's, it's very effective. 
Now, we did mention the other part of that is medications. Now, what do medications do? Medications to treat depression, they change the, um, the quantity, the, the amount of neurotransmitters uh, that the brain needs for normal functioning. So some of those deficiencies that you see or imbalances that you see with things like serotonin and norepinephrine uh, that are needed for normal brain function, uh, they change those things so that you have more of them. Uh, and again, it makes sense if you think about what we just said about both of those modalities. If you combine them together, then you're giving the brain sort of the fuel that it needs to deal with these things and some techniques uh, techniques to, uh, to sort of train it as a toolkit. So uh, that makes sense that those things together. Now, I, there's a lot and there's a lot of physicians that are probably over prescribing antidepressants. Uh, not just to adolescents, but to adults, and not thinking about those other things. We certainly don't have a whole lot of resources, particularly for children and adolescents, uh, as we do for adults. But that's something that that you should think about, and probably any child that's that's clinically depressed should be, you know, referred for those services. Right. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, the barriers to treatment. Um, I think it is. One of the reasons for over-prescribing of medications for both adults and children in this situation is that the time factor and also the lack of access to these health professionals. Mm-hmm. So if you delay it, it's going to get worse, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that is a challenge in making sure that you don't say, well, let's see you back in a couple of months. I mean, that's that's probably uh, going a little bit too long. Let's go to Leslie in Europa. I'm sorry, <laughs> not Europa. Europa is a moon of Jupiter. Eupora. Sorry, Leslie. That's right. Europa Universalis is also a really great uh, grand strategy video game if anyone's interested. But oh, there you go. Topic for a different show. <laughs> um, I'm calling because I was just hearing you talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and, of course, antidepressants and things like that. And I just kind of wanted to share Um, I'm a 30-something professional attorney, and I didn't have issues with um, the depression that I had been diagnosed with or even the ADD that I had been diagnosed with when I was a young teenager. Um, Never got any treatment, never had any issues that were really severe until I started my professional career. So even when you, you feel sort of feel like you have a handle on your challenges, whatever they may be, Um, You might come to a certain point in your life where you just did not have the coping skills or you weren't trained with the coping skills yet to deal with new circumstances. And so um, that was something I had to kind of deal with. I didn't want to be on any kind of medication because I I had some stigma associated with it. And I personally felt like that was some kind of weakness for some reason. And honestly, it completely turned my whole life around, my whole life worldview. Um, So when you have the right doctor and they are listening to you and they really understand what it is you're asking for, um, the medication can be really great. But even even so, not having talk therapy is a real detriment to all patients and, and really all your neighbors and your family and your friends and everybody who has to help you cope with things that nobody is professionally trained to cope with. So... Um, that's just something I think everybody should consider is that, um, especially with access to care, kids need to be able to identify what their challenges are and learn how to cope with them and not take it so personally. It's not parents, you know, being bad parents and why is my kid sad? It doesn't have anything to do with you. Most right. of the time it's just some weird wiring in your brain and talk therapy, especially, um, 
uh, cognitive behavioral therapy has been the most helpful for me, even on top of medications and things, because the medication just makes it possible for you to apply what you learn in therapy, in right. my opinion. Yeah. So and it, I just and wanted to share that. No, those are great comments. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling, Leslie. Yeah, that's a great testament to, uh, you know, and, and that's what we see, too. We see this in medical school. You know, people can be doing just fine uh, up until the point where there's enough pressures where they can't, they don't really have the the background to really uh, push through that. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people that have gone their whole lives that have been uh, compensating that you sort of push them over the edge and then these things get revealed. She brought up some great things that we've been talking about, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy. Those are great tools to use that can stay with you too. Most of the time, uh, medications for pure depression, uh, there's a limited time period that you would take those. Uh, generally speaking, you know, three months, probably on the short end, probably six to 12 months mm-hmm. would be more realistic. But then after that, it's those those techniques, the toolbox that Dr. Villarreal mentioned that will stay with you that you can use down the road. Um, And again, a good way to think about this is sports training. Um, And uh, certainly that's, that's, you know, those techniques, those skills, those doing the small things can help. Um, And for kids too, in adolescence, uh, there are some changes and dynamics to their uh, social systems that they've had in the past that they don't necessarily have now, even with, uh, you know, social media and uh, lots of things that connect them in some ways, they're disconnected in others. Uh, we know at a very early age, if you miss those connections with other peers or with your family that can have detrimental effects later on. So you want to give them a rich opportunity uh, of interacting with others and directly interacting with them, not just with an iPad or a phone or those kinds of things. Certainly easier, but whoever said parenting's easy. <laughs> um, but yeah, those are great comments that she had. And, you know, some of the medication classes we have, the SSRIs, that's the selective serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors. There's some others that are a little bit similar to that mm-hmm. that deal with norepinephrine. And then some older classes too, the tricyclics. Uh, antidepressants aren't used as much, but they're they're also there. And then you know some other drugs that might be uh, might be useful in some situations. Um, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Got a couple more minutes if you want to call in with a question uh, or comment about depression and its effects on your family. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You know, uh, suicide, we should uh, talk about that these last couple of minutes. Absolutely. That it, Take that seriously, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if your child is says, you know, I'm thinking about killing myself or hurting myself, um, even though it may be other things that are going on, uh, that's, that is a warning sign that you need to do something. Right. And asking your child about that, even <clears throat> there's been no evidence showing that if you bring up the topic that they're more likely to think about right. it. And I think that's a preconceived notion. Yeah, um, a lot of parents still will say, well, if I talk about it, that's something to give them the idea. Right. Uh, I guarantee you adolescents are thinking about everything. And the the access that they have to news now with suicides and a lot of the violence that's going on uh, in our world, it's it's uh, they're, they're going to be thinking about it one way or another. Um, but bring it up. Actually, one good way to bring it up is when you hear something in the news to talk about it. Mm-hmm. That, again, and that's sort of your way as a family that you can give them a toolkit about thinking about that, that it's okay to express their emotions in different ways. 
um, making sure they have a safe environment around them. Uh, you know, if you have firearms, make sure you got them locked up. Make sure that they're safely put away. Uh, medications that they can have access to, not just theirs, but others, grandma, grandpa. There's lots of medications that if, you know, taken a lot of those, they can certainly harm them. All right, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank our special guest, Dr. Ashley Villarreal, for coming in and uh, helping us wade through this depression. And thanks to our callers, too, for calling in and sharing their comments and questions. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from you, our listeners. Our uh, producer today is uh, Jay White. I almost called you Dr. Jay White. What do you think about that, Jay? I'll take it. (laughs) So I'm Dr. Jimmy. You can join us next Thursday at 11 o'clock for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, and you can stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.